friends, welcome to another episode of Murray Musings, your one and only favourite Andy Murray podcast. It's Claire here and I'm joined by my two usual co-hosts, Scott and Peter, today. Um, but we're also joined by a very special guest and most of you will recognise his dulcet tones from covering tennis on Sky Sports and Amazon Prime over the years. And some of you will even have been lucky enough to, meet, to have met him at Wimbledon after carefully stalking out the media centre this summer. Um, we're delighted to be joined in Murray Musings HQ today by the one and only Marcus Buckland. Marcus, welcome to Murray Musings HQ. We're delighted to have you. How are you today? Yeah, it's a pleasure to be here, Claire. I'm, I'm fine. Yeah, I'm very well. What do you What do you think of um, Murray Musings HQ? As you can see, Scott has dusted off his cardboard Andy, especially for you today. He's looking a little bit um, He's looking a little bit more stable than normal, Scott. I've, I've taped him up especially for you, Marcus. Like usually, he's kind of falling over a wee bit, and um, because he is just like like Andy normally. Andy, yeah. <laughs> the way looming over your shoulder, I, I can just envisage him suddenly screaming at you like he sometimes does to his coach. <laughs> You're just waiting to raise use over the course of the next half an hour, I fear. When I we, feel like uh, Scott would quite enjoy that, actually, if Andy just like lunged over him and screamed at him. Absolutely. I when we um when we when we interviewed uh, when we interviewed Judy, Judy Murray earlier this year, I think one of her first things that she said when she saw it was, was like, or was it or, or what or wasn't Mark Pet one of the two was like He's actually looking pretty cheery in this. In this, <laughs> this part. He's actually looking pretty happy in this. This is how he looks when he's happy. So, you know what? Yeah. I've, um, I've managed to. I've managed to just about keep him going for you. So hopefully he won't. If he does, does just falls forward at some point, you'll know why. He's you know he's doing well. He's doing well, and we'll 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 we'll, we'll keep an eye on as we as we fire on through the questions for you today, Mark. <laughs> um, so let's get into the first question. Uh, one of my favorites. Um, it's about our origin story for all of our uh, guests of uh, how did you come into tennis and pretty much a quick little uh, life story uh, in a few minutes or so, um, just telling us about your background. Okay, yeah. Well, I as a, as a kid, I had great dreams to be a professional athlete. And my plan was very simple. I was going to be centre forward for Tottenham Hotspur. I was going to open the batting for Surrey in England. I was going to win the Open. And I was also, of course, going to Wimbledon. And it did start to dawn on me at a relatively early age, probably about seven, quite realistic for a seven-year-old, that none of these things were going to happen. And I think I was quite mature in some ways, very immature in others and still am to this day. But I, I thought to myself, OK, if, if you're not going to get paid to play sport, then why don't you get paid to talk about it? And from about eight or nine, when I was playing with my friends, be it a kick around in the garden, whatever, I'd, I'd be doing the commentary. I would go and interview people. I got my dad to be all sorts of different sporting athletes. So I kind of knew that that's the, the way I wanted to go. And I think partly because of my background as well, a lot of broadcasters saw me as quite a nice sort of middle-class boy and, and they stereotypically shoehorn me into tennis so when I was at BBC Radio I started to do a lot of tennis and I really enjoyed it and then I moved to Sky back in oh a long long time ago in 1997 and I was a, a football presenter there for the first 10 years or so and then we lost the rights to the Prem Plus which was the pay-per-view Premier League subscription channel that they had and that coincided this actually I can I can be 
specific. It was March 2007. We lost those rights and they called me in and said, look, there's no more Premier League football, but Andy Murray is making giant strides. Uh, Chris Bailey was the tennis presenter at Sky, but he had moved to Australia. There was a vacancy. They said, how do you fancy it? And I said, yeah, I, I like the sound of it. And so I was, I was jettisoned in. I had had the experience of doing quite a lot of radio uh, tennis for the BBC, um, but it was literally in the space of three days. I can I can remember. They said, "Right, well, Indian Wells is starting. Uh, get in there. Peter Fleming is going to be your studio guest. Good luck." And that was it. Suddenly, I was I was in doing an Indian Wells Masters event, and it was it was a great one because I'm sure a lot of people will remember Murray's quarterfinal against Tommy Haas, one of the, to this day, it was only about the third match I'd covered of Murray and it's, it's still up there as one of the top five matches of all time. It was an incredible, it was typical Murray, injury problems, somehow <laughs> found a way to win. That was it. I was hooked. Um, and the rest, as they say, is history. That's, so that's what, 2007, that's 15 years of, of tennis commentary then. So this might, this might be a question that you'll need to dig into the archives for. Over those years then, what's been, and, and, and hopefully it's not the Andy Murray, Indian Wells, Tommy Haas match you've just mentioned. <laughs> what's been the, the favourite match you've ever commented on, uh, commentated on? Well, I mean, I, I, you know, I, I could think long and hard and there have been some astonishing moments, but for me, nothing will ever beat being in New York when he became US Open champion. It was just extraordinary. The match itself was just so typically Andy Murray. You know, he goes the two sets up, he loses the next two sets, he disappears off the court. We all know that he went and looked in the mirror and told himself he could do it, et cetera, et cetera. And he came back and he won it. And, you know, you, you build up to something and, and often when it does happen, if it does happen, it's a little bit of an anti-climax. But I remember we, were, we had our outdoor studio position. We weren't actually uh, on the main court. We, we had this wonderful position. Well, it was wonderful for the first 10 days because you had the practice courts behind you. It got a bit dead after that because people stopped practicing. But you could still sense the excitement in the air. And I was just looking at all the people that I'd worked with. And, and by then I'd been doing it for five years and there'd been an awful lot of ups and an awful lot of downs. And an awful lot of cynics who by that stage had said that Murray was never going to win a Grand Slam title. And when that moment happened and, and there was those few seconds where actually all he could think about was where was his watch? He had to put his watch back on to please the sponsors. It was like, it was like this is the most surreal thing of all time. But just talking about it now, I still get goosebumps. And of course, I know he's gone on to win Wimbledon twice as well. But for me, being there and seeing that long, long wait for a male British tennis player to win a slam come to an end will will never ever be beaten yeah yeah I mean, that, that, it doesn't surprise me yeah I I, I just want to ask follow-up on that sorry Mark is one thing we should clarify and um, we, we've got a list of questions here but what we always do we never go in order we always just jump around so I do apologize if this happens um but uh but just just based on what, what you were saying there you mentioned like the kind of 
moments of uh, you know of, of of people thinking that maybe he wouldn't uh, Andy wouldn't win a major and maybe he wouldn't get there and um, I think the three of us always like me Peter and Claire always kind of thought that he would get there eventually and that he would get it won and that he would get it um, for yourself having you know you know obviously obviously watched him throughout the years before he won a major was there any point in watching him that you doubted that he would get there that you thought maybe he won't get it done maybe at the 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 the, the Wimbledon of that year when he when he lost the final was there ever a time or did you always think that he would get over the line then? Uh, I wish I could tell you that I always thought he was going to win a slam but being brutally honest no there were periods he would come so close of course we know how close he kept on coming but I I'm, I'm a golf fan as well and one of my favorite golfers is another uh, Scotsman Colin Montgomery and, and, and I started to make this little um, e equation that Montgomery early in his career had a whole host of chances to win a major and he kept coming second and the more often that you you just miss out of course the harder it becomes and there was no doubting Montgomery's talent I and mean, he got to number two in the world and to this day a lot of people would name him as as probably the best golfer never to have won a major. And I did start to fear that perhaps Andy Murray was destined to fall into that category. You know, the talent was there, but he, he was playing in this ridiculous era. It wasn't a given. And, and that for me is why when it did finally happen, it was so special. Yeah, absolutely. I, I totally agree with that because people, I think he was, he always went into the matches being the underdog and especially, you know, that, um, US Open final against Djokovic. He he'd lost to to Djokovic quite a few times many before times. that, you know, uh, um, in, including in the Australian Open semi final that year, and the Australian Open final the year before. And so I think you know people were just like, ah, oh, it's it's an, it's good. It's going to be another Andy Murray, so close but not quite moment. Um, and yeah, it's just, it's absolutely incredible. I mean, I, I've told this story a few times, but I was on, I was on the first night at Mahoneyman um, <laughs> when, <laughs> when, when that match was on um, and we were, we were in Barbados and um, yeah, we didn't even like, I, I was saying to my husband, I was like, we're not even going to cocktail ever. Like, this is how we're spending, <laughs> this is how we're spending <laughs> day number one. We're watching Andy Murray win the US Open. I hope your husband's as big a tennis fan as you and was understanding about. <laughs> no, no, not not even close. He he'll watch the Brits, um, but you know he's not like <laughs> he was a bit he's a bit put out. I think. <laughs> um, on 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 the note of like asking you about your favorite match that you've ever commented on, Marcus. Um, is there is there a sorry, Claire? I'm stealing one of your questions here because I'm quite fascinated by this as well. Um, some match that you've commentated on throughout your career that you've been like when is this going to end like is there a time that this match is going to end I can't wait for this match to be over and if there is why was that like was there a match that you've ever been like oh come on like surely not oh well <laughs> yeah I mean <laughs> the thing it's a great privilege of course to cover tennis live but it can be quite brutal just in terms of the schedule and in our earlier days at Sky most of my presentation work was done from the studio and and the great thing was then that we started to expand and we would go on site much more and i actually think it's it's not it's not just for for me and, and my guests to be there that that is a, a big help because if you are you you sense the atmosphere you you make contacts with people etc etc i i think therefore it makes the broadcast better and fortunately sky bought into that and and these days 
certainly with Amazon, we, we try to go on site all the time. Um, when we were in the Sky Studio, I would say particularly for the indoor Paris Masters, the programme would begin quite often, I think, at 10 in the morning, UK time, which would be 11 o'clock French time when the first matches would go on. And we would still be sitting in the same chair at 11 o'clock that night. So it wouldn't necessarily be one match that you're thinking, oh, my goodness me. There, there are certain players when they walked out, you'd go, uh -oh, him again or her again. I'm not going to name those, but there were, there were one or two. But it would just be the sheer volume. And, and sometimes, you know, if you've started on a Monday morning and by Thursday afternoon, you're well into your fourth day of 11-hour-plus broadcasting. As, as wonderful a sport as tennis is, watching that ball go over a net again and again and again could, could drive you mad. So there were a few occasions like that and some great classic moments with Peter Fleming, who I love working with, falling asleep. Um, <laughs> yeah. this is, uh, he had no excuse here because he... We went on air at three o'clock in the afternoon. I forget which event it was, but I can clearly remember going on air and saying, good afternoon, everybody. What a fantastic lineup we've got with Novak Djokovic first on, et cetera, et cetera. Peter Fleming's alongside me. I asked Peter a question. And as I turned to look at him, and he will deny this, but it's absolutely true. As I turned to look at him with that first very banal question, his eyes flickered and closed and he fell asleep for no half way. a second. Whatever it may be. <laughs> then woke up and gave a completely disconnected answer. And <laughs> nobody in the gallery even seemed to notice. But my, my guest has fallen asleep. The people in the gallery aren't listening. What are we doing here? So there were, there were days when perhaps the motivation wasn't quite as professionally intense as it should be. But I want to stress that those days were few and far between. On the, on the opposite end of that spectrum, then, seeing as Scott stole my... Um, carefully curated question um, on the opposite side of that have you ever watched a match that you just did not want to end because the tennis was so good yes absolutely and uh, my mind will immediately go to some of the epic encounters I've been lucky enough to see at Wimbledon in particular I mean we, we've lived in such an unbelievable era that it, it's hard actually just to immediately grab one match here one match there of course some of the you know some of the Federer Nadal battles on the grass in particular. I immediately think of a couple of US Open semi-finals actually featuring Federer and Djokovic, where uh, they were the ones where Djokovic saved match points as well and had almost given up at the time. And just the the combination of those two playing against each other, the unbelievable atmosphere, and the fact actually that that Djokovic, whether you, whether you love him or hate him, has had to deal with hostile environments almost wherever he's gone. Whereas Federer, even you know, even in London, sometimes playing against Andy, it was hard to, to decipher at times who the home player was because he had that fanatical support and they just buy out every seat for the World Tour finals because they didn't want to miss their man. And, and I, I was always really impressed, actually, um, at how Djokovic dealt sometimes with... 17,000 people quite clearly wanting him to lose. And those matches had a magic of their own, which I would quite happily have seen go on and on and on. Um, so there, there, are, there are plenty of them. And I think I'm a little bit perverse like that because if, if you work in sport, uh, whatever sport you're doing, you kind of love it, but you also want the day to finish because it's your working mm -hmm. day and you want to mm -hmm. go home. So a lot of people go, oh, no, no, it's going to go to another set, isn't it? And the number of times where I've, I've thought, well, actually, you know what? I hope it does because it's so good. So I, I'm, I'm not giving you a specific answer as such, but it definitely happens quite often. Yeah. Although I'm often 
the odd one out because a lot of people are looking at their watches and thinking, yeah, this is great, but I've got a bed to go to or whatever mm-hmm. it might be. Mm-hmm. Yeah, definitely. Yeah. I mean, I've, I've watched matches like that as well where I might want, it's obviously if it's, a, if it's a match Andy's playing, I want Andy to win no matter what. And I would rather it was over really quickly just for the stress levels. But if I'm watching a match that I'm neutral on, I might find myself starting to root for one player just ever so slightly over another. But the level of tennis is so good that I'm like, oh, okay, I want I want, I want them to win. But actually, I want them to win this set so we can see another set. And yeah, yeah. It's, it, it, it happens because you just get so drawn into it, don't you? And actually, I think that's a really interesting point you make. And I equate that to other sports. If, if you go to a football match, you're supporting one team or the other. And if your team goes straight up, well, that's great. And you carry on cheering. But if you're at a tennis event, you're right. People will more often than not want one of the players to win, but they want a great match. And that, and sometimes the atmosphere shifts a bit, doesn't it? Because they don't want to see a, a quick three-setter and they will often get behind the underdog to make sure he comes back into it. I think it makes the sport a little bit different. I think it must make it harder sometimes for the players because mm-hmm. one minute you support and then you realise, oh, this lot actually want more tennis. They don't just want me to play. <laughs> like, I'd be annoyed about that. Such fickle fans. Yeah. <laughs> Speaking of uh, people that you uh, would like to win, have you ever acted uh, happy for someone that actually won and that you wanted them to lose? Because I know uh, you wanted to become an actor when you were younger. So, yeah. Yes. Oh, yeah. There's a lot of acting going on here. Um, uh-huh. I mean, well, listen, let, let, let's be honest. If it's a Murray match... Of course, I, we always wanted Murray to win. We also had to be a bit careful because, as you guys will know, um, tennis fans are very fickle and extremely loyal. And if you say the wrong thing about him or her, uh-huh. you're going to get, particularly since social media developed. So uh, I, I used to be a little bit, maybe a bit too honest in my opinions, and, and I, I've sort of reeled those back in a little bit and of course I have to remember if I'm hosting a show whoever's playing there are people supporting both of them and I do think it would be extremely unprofessional if I made it very clear who I wanted to win so yeah some acting has gone on some (laughs) get to meet the players and you get to like not just their game but their personality as well and equally there are one or two that you meet and you may still quite like their game but you actually don't particularly like them as individuals and again mm-hmm. that's got to keep under your hat as much as possible so uh <laughs> that's fair that's fair marcus um so going back slightly to your uh, to your kind of origin with uh, with with, with broadcasting um do you have any um what but the question i've written here was how did you get into the role but i think i think you kind of went over that with your origin but so i'm going to kind of combine the question in terms of like what, what what advice would you have for anybody looking anybody wanting to work in like tennis broadcasting but i guess more generally like sports broadcasting as well obviously um you've you've worked uh, a fair amount of uh, like football content and things like that um, but yeah, anybody anybody looking at trying to trying to get into what 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 kind of advice would you give for them? Well, what I would first of all say is that you've got to have a passion for the sport because it's all encompassing. It's going to eat into your evenings, into your weekends. It's not the most sociable thing to do. 
So you've got to really want to do it for the right reasons. And also, if, you, if that is the case, you're going to. I, I have two. I have two sons actually. Both play a lot of tennis. Um, one has just started at university, and he's, you know, still not sure what he wants to do. And I, I kind of say to them, you've got to. And it's not always possible, of course, in life. But you've got to try to find what really engages you because if you're engaged by something as we all know you will be much better at it you'll be prepared to work much harder at it so I've been incredibly lucky in that regard as I mentioned I yeah I sort of knew that I wanted to do broadcasting and I found it difficult early because I was very lucky that actually from university I got on a postgraduate BBC course and that taught you everything you needed to know about being actually it was more designed towards news but Obviously, I, I was waiting for a sports job to come up and they sent you to three local radio stations. You cut your teeth there. Then luckily, I got a job up in Liverpool eventually doing football primarily. Um, and it was it was lonely. I didn't know anybody there. And, and, and it's tough. So you've got to deal with all of that. But the rewards then are fulsome. So I, I, the one thing I would say, you've really got to want to do it and then go and get as much practical experience as you can, which in this day and age is so much easier, of course, now with... Um, YouTube, whatever, whatever. So, I mean, I'm, I'm a bit of a dinosaur, but when I, when I went into broadcasting, you still edited tapes with a razor. Um, <laughs> that, that's how far back I go. And typewriters, I can remember, you know, they'll go back into the late 80s, everybody's still clacking away on a typewriter in the newsroom at BBC Radio Merseyside. So I'm terrified by technology. Anyone who's worked with me will clarify this. I, I don't know what to do technically. Fortunately, everybody coming through university or whatever today is is, is much more multi-talented in that regard but yeah you've got to love what you're doing I think that's the most important thing and and then immerse yourself in it as much as possible and the one other thing which I say funny enough I was doing the Europa League highlight show last night and I took a friend of my son's in for a bit of work experience and I said do focus on your writing skills as well because it's all very well being creative and 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 everything else and a lot of people are but I think writing is is so important you know because okay if you're if you're if you're actually commentating you're, you're not going to be reading the written word but the better you are with your english and your powers of description etc etc the better broadcaster you will be and i do think that that's slightly overlooked by a lot of people so i would say work as hard as you can read keep writing enjoy writing enjoy using words because you know that's what broadcasting is all about yeah, that's that's really interesting. It's for, for me, I can get a bit tongue-tied when I'm talking and I've got better since doing the podcast. Uh, you know, I find myself, I think a, a bit more about what I'm going to say, but I've always been a writer rather than a talker. Um, and I have found myself over the years, like when I was at school, I did um, debate club and I was a bit of a geek and I, I did all that. And I was, I was great at public speaking, but when I moved into journalism, I just focused on the written word and doing my articles. And I even now still find myself, I have to, in, in my job, if I'm briefing someone on something over the phone, I have to really like think about what I'm going to say and and mm-hmm. slow myself down and remember that I have to, you know, I have to get my words out and think about it. And it's not written in front of me. It's not as easy as it just been written in front of me. Um, so it's, it is quite interesting to to hear that there should always still be a lot of focus on writing and it does help um, 
yeah, I I still get tongue tied even to this day. I don't think I could. I don't think I could be a, a you know a, a broadcaster properly. I certainly don't think anyone would ever pay to hear me <laughs> ramble on. <laughs> I, the thing is, being tongue tied, it, it's the fear of everybody. And you know, every time I every time I I do a show, you, you because it's live, you never quite know what is going to happen. Um, the way I the way I, I I try to think of it, ultimately, we are not. Um, saving people's lives. It's not heart surgery. What is the worst thing that can happen? You, you get your words muddled up. People can have a laugh. And, you know, I love working in particular with Greg Rosetsky. I've got some brilliant tapes still of Greg when he's, when he's got his um, words in a muddle. But actually, people, you know, if they, if they know that you're, you're trying to do your very best and, and you're showing enthusiasm, if you muddle your words up every now and then, people actually love it. I mean, some people have almost made a career, haven't they, out of their, of their various verbal errors. So I, I try not to fear that too much. But the one other thing I would say in terms of advice, and it's something I've learned as well, is that the more you prepare for something, I mean, it's, it's, it's a cliche, I know, but fail to prepare, then you should prepare to fail. And mm -hmm. early in my career, there were times... When I was quite young, I remember one in particular. I was still in local radio and I was I was doing a because I was up in in Liverpool, we would do Liverpool, Everton, and Tramier Rovers. And I'd been sent down to London to do a Brentford against Tramier game, which was like a lunchtime kickoff. And I went to a party the night before with all my mates and drank far too much, had not really done my prep beforehand, thought, oh, I'll have time in the morning, woke up with a terrible hangover went to the game, did a really awful, awful commentary. And that was like a real kick up the backside for me because I had not prepared. And since then, I've tried more and more because you feel that much more confident in whatever walk of life you're in. If you've done your preparation, we get lots of notes. And, and these days, it's easy to do even more research. And I, I just feel so much calmer now when I go on to a show if I know I've done my homework. And, and then the chances are, I'm not going to make any major errors. And, um, and, and I think that's absolutely critical. Yeah. Well, so, I mean, I presume that means that you meticulously researched Money Musings before you came on here today. <laughs> oh, I, I've, I've lived. <laughs> <laughs> um, yeah, I, it's interesting you say that because um, you're sitting here in Money Musings HQ, Marcus, and I always um, describe Money Musings as the most professional unprofessional podcast <laughs> so hopefully you don't get to the end of this being like these guys didn't know their stuff um, <laughs> i do have uh one of my favorite questions uh that i ask at the end of the seasons um is there any uh players that are like bubbling on the surface that we want to watch out for next season that you think that could be breakout stars contenders uh, you know, um, I tell you who I, I'm, I'm so excited about, and he's, he's been on the scene now for a while, but, you know, he's had some fantastic results. And I, I do think that next year could be huge. And that is Jack Draper. Yeah. And obviously saying that with my with my British hat on, but I've known Jack for a little while. My my younger son, actually, for a, a brief period of time, um, was hitting with him. Uh, they were both together uh, at uh, Chiswick Riverside. So I've always had a personal interest in his development i found him to nice. be the most delightful guy away from the court as well so i'm i'm speaking partly with my heart but my head also tells me that he has got everything 
it takes next year to get in. Certainly, I think inside the world's top twenty, and then let's see what happens from there. Yeah, uh, I, you know, it's difficult because you, you you try and sit down and predict. Oh, he's going to do something. She's going to do something, and, and then you you're made to look really foolish. And and it's so competitive, of course, near still near the top of the men's game in particular. So I I I I, I haven't got somebody I can say to you straight away. Yeah, I think they're going to become you know a Grand Slam champion, a top five top 10 player out of out of nowhere but I do think Draper is going to be fun to watch um on the women's side it's so unpredictable I'm, I'm flying off to Dallas um tomorrow for the WTA finals and nice. you know you, you look back from from 12 months ago in Guadalajara and Garbina Mukarutha who who went all the way there and then you're thinking my god she's playing well I think she's going to have an amazing uh, 2022 of course she's not even qualified i just find it it's so difficult to predict anything with any degree of certainty because a there is so much talent uh in in both the the men's and the women's game that you can dip for a bit and that's it you can get injured there are so many i mean again i mentioned my my two boys because they played a bit of tennis and you realize even at, at, a, at a, a low junior level how demanding the sport is how brutal it is both physically and mentally and how you can take absolutely nothing for granted and that's why i've got such unbelievable admiration and respect for all professional tennis players because to get to get inside the world's top 100 for me is an incredible achievement never mind get inside the, the world's top 50 top 20 and then stay there on a regular basis and it's why i think andy murray is quite unbelievable because he fought tooth and nail to get towards the top of the game at a time when it could never have been harder to compete because of nadal because of Federer, because of djokovic and for him to stay there to keep believing to deal with the physical ailments that that of course he suffered from as well i i, I find it absolutely mind blowing and what does my head in is people who who say and they said this in particular about tim hemman who's who i've done a lot of work with on prime and who had an amazing career and and made things possible i think for a lot of young brits now because before hemman and before rosetsky i think it was very hard for british players to think oh we can we can get somewhere and and tim made what six grand slam semi-finals four of them at wimbledon and still people come up to me and go oh that him and what what a bottler he was uh, it makes my blood boil the guy the guy lost to some of the best players ever in those semi-finals he won i don't know how many titles he won but uh, a lot and he got to number four in the world uh, it, you know just <laughs> it's unbelievable so um you know i i just wish i wish great success to anybody who is who is bubbling under at the moment because it's an amazing opportunity but it's so hard. I don't think unless you've sort of been there and seen it yourselves, I don't think anyone fully appreciates just how brutally hard it is to be a, a, a semi-successful tennis player, yeah. whatever that is. It's so interesting you say that about Tim Henman as well, because I, I can't remember if it was the start of this year or sometime last year when Andy Murray was on a league of their own. I was going to mention um, yes, and, yes. and James Corden was kind of having a bit of a pop at Tim mm-hmm. Hainman, um, and and Andy, he he's I think he was expecting Andy to like agree with him and and sort of start ripping into Tim, and Andy just was like, "You guys have got no idea." Like he was he was 
so so high in the top 10 in the world I'm not even sitting with like comedians who are in the top 100 comedians in the world um you like he really had he really had Tim's back and I was I thought that was yeah I thought that was great and it's so it's just interesting that you uh, mentioned that specifically as well well Um, it's it's really easy to have a pop at someone like Tim Hemman and you know uh, but Andy's right he he knows of course the the dedication the drive and the fact actually what, what I find interesting is that Hemman when he was a teenager was never one of the top players of his generation he was always there or thereabouts but it was because of his his heart he kept going I mean he's he's an immensely talented sportsman he's incredibly annoying in that regard because of course we know he's always, he's a plus golfer he's he's very good at table tennis you don't want to spend an evening drinking wine with him either because a he knows his wine and b although he's got that very clean-cut image he knows how to hold his wine as i've discovered to my cost in home a few months ago but you know he he kept going and eventually made full use of the talent that he had but it it, it wasn't like a carlos alcaraz well yeah but he's going to be world number one at the age of 18 19 it wasn't like that he just worked hard he was clever and yeah i'm glad that andy put james corden in his place a few more people should do that every now and then. Oh, yeah, yeah. absolutely. Absolutely. Um, just uh, keeping on the topic of the British players and, you know, you mentioned specifically Jack Draper. What are your thoughts for some of the young British women who are coming through? So, like, I think Harriet Dart in particular this year has had a really good year. Um, what do you think she might do next year? Do you think she can build upon what she's achieved this year? Um, I hope so. I I. You know, I don't want to sound uh, too negative, but I think I, I, I'm really impressed by what Harriet has already achieved. And I, I would be even more impressed if she was able to build on that. And I I, I might be wrong, but I, I'm not sure whether over the next two, three years, tennis will be her be all and her end all. Um, I think she may have other things in her life that might ultimately uh, lead to her not I don't know, um, I'd say fulfill her potential because that's such a hard thing to to say or do. Uh, I, I hope she does. I, I wouldn't be absolutely sure. What I am excited about um, is um, there's there are a couple of very, very talented young British girls coming through. Um, and you, again, you don't want to put pressure on them, but I think I do think the future is quite bright in that regard. And also, you know, Hem, uh, the the Raducanu story is so highly publicised, and it's very very easy again to weigh in and say things that perhaps you you would regret saying afterwards. But I was interested to to read Dmitry Tursunov's quotes a couple of days ago, where you know he he made the interesting point that he didn't want to carry on coaching her because he he spotted some red flags, whatever he yeah, meant. But, but the bottom line being, I, I think he said that you know. She, listen to one person and I very much hope that she does but he also made the point that that she's incredibly talented she's still incredibly young and you know her career is almost the wrong way around of course you win a slam like that you're kind of only going to go go one way for a while afterwards aren't you so anyone who thinks that Radu Kanu has 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 had her day I think will be proved wrong over the next couple of years as well yeah yeah yeah. and even of course even if she has had her day she's still achieved more than so many people would in their careers so absolutely no come on we'll all we'll all take a slam and and a a couple of sponsorship deals and walk away if necessary won't we but i know she'll want much more than that i think she can achieve much more than that but keep on just remember the name hannah klugman i mentioned some of the young players that are coming through and this is probably the kiss of death but 
Hannah Klugman, who's only, I think, 15 years of age, uh, immensely talented. And I, I really hope that she kicks on in the manner that she has done over the past two or three years. Fair. That's keep, fair. keep that name in mind then. My uh, favorite questions uh, to ask all of our guests is what would your uh, walk-on song be like to get you pumped up? Like your little five minute warm up, like, hey, you know, let's cheer for Marcus and we can just <laughs> get this yeah. crowd going. <laughs> That's a very good question. Um, my my musical taste is very middle of the road. So uh -huh. I'm sure if my natural inclination would be the perfect accompaniment to me striding out onto court. But, um, you know, I normally I'm, I'm a. I'm Billy Joel's greatest fan. And I was really upset because he was playing in New York during the US Open recently. I wasn't able to go and see him at Madison Square Gardens because he's amazing live. Um, so, yeah, I'd, I'd probably want Billy Joel playing because I've got such an affinity with him, but I can't think of a, uh, a song that would quite work in that regard. So it would probably... I think, I think We Didn't Start the Fire would be a good song to, to strut out onto court to. I, I, that would work. That's quite long, and and yeah, but yeah, I, or uh, pressure. I mean, he he he. he I, I think I would have Billy Joel, pressure, um, or you know, I should have prepared better for this question, shouldn't I? Or you know, something rousing from. I'm a Beatles fan, so my musical taste is is not very cutting edge, but. I've gone for class over trying to be cool sometimes. So yeah, we'll go Billy. Okay, we'll go. We didn't start the fire. Why not? We didn't start the fire. But I, I don't want to hit those. It's a, it's a classic. Yeah. I, I had We Didn't Start the Fire. I think I had it on a repeat loop about five times when I was running the London Marathon because it it just, it is one of those songs that-, that And you completed the marathon. Oh yeah, exactly. I completed it. So yeah, thanks, thanks to Billy Joel. <laughs> thing about that, Billy Joel's headlining Hyde Park next summer of 2023. And I was thinking it's, he hasn't released an album, I don't think since about 1995, something like that. And I thought it would be quite good for him now to have a, we didn't start the fire part two, which could cover the last sort of 30 oh, years. Yeah. Yes, oh, yeah. that would be amazing. I'm you assuming, should tweet him. Well, I'm assuming somebody has suggested it to him, but. Come on, I'll, I'm going to I'm going to be at bit at High Park next year, so I'll make sure I go up and see him. Say, hey, Billy, I've got a good idea for you. You need to take a you need to take a banner with you, Marcus, which has got everything that's happened over the past thirty years written down on it, and just hold it up for him and be like, "Here's your song right here." Which would, of course, include Murray. Andy Murray will get into that, wouldn't he? Because yes. he has the yes. first part. So why don't we all get around and write the song for, for Billy? Yeah, I, I, we, can, we can make this work let's do let's do that right <laughs> like you know what we're gonna do another part two of this uh okay. episode of Murray musings and we'll get you back on marcus and we'll just spend the entire episode doing that <laughs> <Brainstorm> <laughs> and Billy Joel's new song. Absolutely. <laughs> um so yeah that kind of leads us kind of quite nicely on mentioning andy there at the end um billy joel if you're listening by the way yeah obviously just get on it um but um yeah obviously mentioning andy there let's uh let's let, let's wind back around andy with the kind of final kind of question right here i think that we're that that, that we're going to fire your way here marcus um we, we chatted a bit about andy earlier in the episode and uh, your memories of watching him win uh, his uh, his his first major title the u.s open and um, let's kind of like 
come through the years now to nowadays and um whenever we have somebody on an episode of money musings for the first time we do always like to kind of um ask them what uh what their thoughts are on andy at the moment the 2022 version of andy murray um how do you see him kind of progressing these days and um yeah what you're kind of I guess like realistic predictions for him are obviously you're going to say winning Wimbledon next year. We know that obviously you're going to say that you're going to say you can see him doing that. So, um, but on a more serious note, like, yeah, we are looking for kind of honesty here. Like if, 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 if you're not feeling it, that's fine. But if you are, that's also fine. Um, so fire away, Marcus. Uh, okay. Yeah. Well, honestly, another Billy Joel song there, by the way, I, do you know what? I think, I think the, the best thing, is that whatever happens now, Andy has had a chance to sort of play it on his own terms. And I'm, I'm glad he's been able to come back over the past year or so, because, of course, famously in Australia, we had the retirement parade, didn't we? And, and whoa, that was a silly thing to do, because if anyone wants to write Andy Murray off, he's going to love proving them wrong. And he's, con- he's continued to do that. I don't think he'll win Wimbledon, to be absolutely honest with you. But... I still think that he has got a week in him somewhere between now and when he finally hangs up those rackets to win a decent-sized title. And I think that's presumably what keeps him going. It's certainly what keeps all of his fans going. And I think he's got the ability to do that. It's a, it's a brutally competitive game. Physically, he's not, of course, what he was before. But mentally, I think he is. And I still feel that at some point between now and, and let's say this time next year, we will get to the end of a week and everyone's going to suddenly say, oh my God, Andy Murray's in a final here. Mm-hmm. Let's, let's enjoy this. So I, I, I genuinely believe there is a strong chance that that will happen in the next 12 months. And uh, we'll have a bit of be covering it on, on Prime Video if it does. Okay, so... When Andy, in the next 12 months, when Andy wins whatever tournament, when we do our follow-up uh, episodes for that, will you come back on to discuss it with us? Definitely. I'll take all the credit for his success. Yes. <laughs> look at us. Look at us booking Marcus Buckland in uh, for one more episode of Murray Music. <laughs> we'll also we'll celebrate Andy winning uh, a title and we'll get Billy Joel's new song in. Uh, when, uh, Perfect. Winning a title, Billy Joel back at number one in the charts with a Murray-influenced song. It won't get any better than that. That's it. And that, folks, is, I think, a perfect place for us to wrap up this episode of Murray Musings. Thank you so much, Marcus, for coming on in. I hope um, you've already said you're coming back on. So even if we have scared you off, you're going to have to get over your fears and uh, <laughs> come back and no, visit. A- absolute pleasure. I will try and come up with it. I'm, I'm glad with the Billy Joel song, but I'll come up with a better answer or another answer to who I might want to walk out listening to as well when I'm about to win Wimbledon. That's fair. That's fair. That's great. Um, and yeah, thank you all very much for listening to yet another episode of Murray Musings. Uh, my name's Scott. Uh, he's Peter. Uh, she is Claire, and that has been the star of this episode, Marcus Buckland. Thank you very much, folks, and we'll see you in the next episode. Bye. Thanks, everyone. Bye. Take care. Thanks for listening. Hi, I'm Andy Murray, and you've been listening to the Murray Musings podcast. Mm-hmm.